Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Has American Christianity Failed by Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We are in the chapter on good works, and we're going to be picking up uh, momentarily on page 150, so we can place our finger or our bookmark there. But before we begin, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. As we approach page 150, it might be good for us to just kind of sketch the critique of American Christianity on good works. Of course, Wolf Mueller did this quite humorously on page 143 when he reminded us of uh, the story of the man whose, I think it was the uncle, if I recall correctly, whose dog was very misbehaved murderously so. And the uncle said, it's it's okay, I've bought a number of books, 40 days of dog training purpose, your best dog now, become a better dog. And then likewise on page 150, toward the bottom left-hand corner, you see this kind of crit- uh, critique. If this is your theology, I'm on the last full paragraph of 150, where Wolfmuller writes, if this is your theology of the Christian will, then your teaching of sanctification often boils down to do better, try harder. Maybe the Lord has some helpful principles or some power-boosting spirit infusion, but the idea is the same. Doing good or doing bad is up to you. Sanctification is about training, coaching, instruction, or excuse me, instructing, strengthening, growing, etc., etc., until we obtain some victory. And, you know, I think I think that while that may not be entirely wrong, I mean, the scriptures certainly do talk about growing in our knowledge that might be instructing or receiving instruction, or the scriptures might talk about becoming stronger, they certainly do, or growing in faith and sanctity, they certainly do that as well. Uh, the point rather here is that the all of the onus is put upon you doing the doing. Thus, you can just read a book and learn how to do the doing better yourself. And so, and maybe this resonates with you in your experience, maybe it doesn't, fair enough. This is a generalization to be sure. But American Christianity tends to be a pick-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps kind of theology of good works. And then similarly, the problem with why you're not where you want to be is because you lack some sort of knowledge. So you're set up to buy the next Christian self-help book, and thus you get all the 40 steps, 10 steps, 7 steps, and the sermon series that are these same kinds of things. What have we seen instead from the scriptures we've seen that God creating good works in us is a matter of God first justifying us 
by grace through faith, apart from any works or merit in us. And then he enlivens us. We who are dead in our trespasses, he enlivens by his Holy Spirit. He makes us new, gives us new impulses, new desires of the heart and will. And then he strengthens and enacts those within us so that it is he himself who is at work in us both to will and to do. So you can see the difference there uh, materially, if not simply by emphasis. Secondarily, then, when we look at biblical good works, we don't see a lot of St. Paul laying out the seven steps to having a more effective prayer life, or St. Peter, ten steps to having a more Christian marriage. We just don't see this kind of thing in the Scriptures. But what we do see in the Scriptures is a lot of talk of mortification that the idea of growing stronger in the Christian faith, growing in the Christian faith, uh, growing in our knowledge, that this takes place via life and death struggle, full dependence upon God over and against powers that are too great for us to overcome, namely our own sinful nature, the pressures and lies of the world, the devil and all his horde. So as we try to make progress in the Christian life, it's one of constant mortal combat and personal warfare, and uh, one in which we are trying to crucify the old Adam within us and drown his flesh. As soon as everybody gets warm, uh, maybe we could uh, just monitor that and keep it from cooking us. I can kind of already feel my contacts rebelling against being in my eyes. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Further hairs from my head trying to leap off out of fear for what's to come. So let's take a look at page 151 and let's get just a little, little bit of a scriptural taste here. Uh, from Romans 8, Ephesians 4, Romans 13, some of these passages that Wolfmuller has quoted for us. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So here we can see two different ways in which we can quote-unquote live. But the one way, living according to the flesh, is in fact not life, but death. So what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Most of us as Americans are doing a fine job of that. <laughs> and maybe it would even benefit us to think concretely about the flesh to live according to the flesh is to simply put the needs of the flesh, the needs of the body ahead of all else. That might be a very basic definition. And then that extends, as the passions of the flesh extend, it extends into increasingly immoral thoughts, words, and deeds. So, let me give you, let me try to give you like, the closest I can to a neutral example. The body gets hungry, and the immediate impulse without thinking in our culture is, feed it. 
the body has a headache, and the most immediate impulse in our culture tends to be, where's the ibuprofen? Um, our body, let's go back to the hunger one, or, well, no, let's, let's go to this. Our body feels like it doesn't want to do the task that's set before it, so we put it off. And then what happens with these kind of basic impulses where without even thinking the body is governing us is then it can get pushed into extremes to where the body not wanting to do something right now gets pushed off so then it never gets done. And what actually happens though is the flesh begins to get stronger. Less and less gets done in increasing categories and a kind of malaise or apathy or laziness, sloth, might take over. And this happens, but it happens one step at a time, and it happens typically from things we would consider relatively neutral, like just not right now, right now I'll take a nap, to expressing themselves over the course of days, weeks, months, years into a pattern and a way of life. We can see the same thing. We use the example of medicine. I've got a headache. I don't, I don't even stop to think if there might be another cause or if there might be any kind of spiritual reflection upon my headache or whatever other discomfort it is I'm experiencing. I just immediately go to the remedy. And then as that writes itself within us, then you can see the ways in which this increases. I feel depressed today. I need to go to the doctor and get a prescription. Um, or I, you know, feel anxious. The answer is a pill. So we can see how in our society, now I'm not trying to suggest to you, I want to kind of hedge myself here. I'm not trying to suggest to you there aren't times in which we need medicine. There are. There, there are times in which we need to go to the doctor, go to the psychologist, deal with some sort of chemical imbalance or thing going on with us that medication would use to help. That's good. But what I'm talking about here is just this impulse within the flesh to pain, relief, problem, answer never going any further than that. And if we allow that rather neutral impulse to develop, it can develop into an entire way of life where we're not, we're not circumspect about anything. We're just constantly trying to medicate ourselves. This is a pathway to many uh, substance addictions too, because rather than dealing with the fact that I'm feeling lonely, meaningless, frustrated, forgotten, I'm immediately rushing to medicate that. In fact, I might even, I might not even be aware that those are the things I'm feeling because my flesh has such a strong impulse to just medicate right away. So you can find that, I mean, this is why to one degree or another, things like therapy can actually help with substance abuse because you're actually getting to the root of why, of why it is you're trying to medicate. You can start to address those in less difficult ways. All right. And then, of course, you know, food. I'm hungry. I eat. And that's a pretty neutral thing. But when you always answer the call of your body, 
then your body itself and the desire to eat can start to take different forms. So that you'll eat but not be satisfied, so you'll eat more. And then this will become a pattern. Or at any impulse to eat, even the slightest pang of hunger, it's like going to the cabinet, grabbing the Doritos. Then this can start to snowball and manifest itself in, like we said, uh, well, no, I think I said it was sloth, but into a kind of gluttonous form where just the second my body feels any discomfort in regard to food, I'm going to eat. But then as this kind of becomes a pattern, again, you can kind of have this medication via food. So you can notice, I'm, if you pay attention, it's like, am I really hungry or am I bored? Am I really hungry or do I just desire that sensual experience of having food or having something to nibble on, having something to preoccupy whatever fixation that is, oral or otherwise, in me. So what we do here in America that's just so alien, I think, to the way the Bible thinks and the way much of the ancient church thinks is we just immediately think if the body feels it, it's good and natural and needs to be addressed. What St. Paul is saying is if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. Because the flesh gets stronger and stronger and stronger until it, until it becomes things like, well, I want to pray. And as soon as you say, I want to pray, your body instantly goes, no, you don't. You want to eat. No, you don't. You want to sleep. You need sleep more than prayer. No, you don't. You should really go get something to eat and then pray. Do you pray after you eat? Oh, you're satiated. So this can, the flesh precludes spiritual things and the spiritual things preclude fleshly things. And so there is a kind of, we would say, asceticism, I think Paul would just call it Christianity, uh, that, that we need to embrace, and especially us in our culture, and we need to embrace very slowly and very humbly. If my body is telling me it needs these things, I ought to be skeptical. I ought to be a good steward, but I ought to be skeptical, and I ought to start to gain a sense that I'm in control of my body. My body's not in control of me. This, by the way, is where really fasting is seen to have a value from Old Testament times all the way through New Testament times. Christ simply assumes that his disciples are going to fast when you fast. Yet most of American Christianity, I think, I mean, Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy will have fasts. I don't know how many of their members actually fast during these fasts. But then much of American Protestantism, Lutheranism, could be lumped in with that, doesn't fast, doesn't understand fasting, and has no rationale for it whatsoever. And so it immediately strikes us as extraneous, as external, as maybe even dangerous, because you're going to think you're becoming some holier than thou by fasting, or this kind of thing. But what we've lost is this very basic sense that a fast, no matter how small, even if the fast is, I'm going to stop eating before I'm full, is you're telling your body who's boss. You're telling the flesh who's boss. That's the, that's the beauty of a, of a fast. Now there's all kinds of different things that have been used, jumping in a freezing cold lake or in, uh, taking a cold shower, um, that you can see how that's, that's come like to, so this is like kind of a old wives tale treatment of lust. You know, if you're inflamed with lust, go take a cold shower. That, that in and of itself does nothing. 
you're just inflamed with lust and cold. <laughs> but, but what that's trying to get at is that's trying to get at a larger picture of start denying your body the comforts that it's demanding. Your body has gotten so fat, happy, and bossy, it's demanding you to do all kinds of things that you don't want to do. So how do you fight back against the flesh? And here, you know, we can say confession absolution is at the core of fighting back against the flesh. Confessing against it. Going to a pastor and confessing is embarrassing to the flesh, not to the new man. And so you're mortifying the flesh. But then you can mortify the flesh by being intentional about your eating and uh, your fasting. You can be intentional in terms of your, uh, when you, when you have pain or discomfort, in terms of, well, why don't I put that off? Have a glass of water. Why don't I put the Tylenol off? Have a glass of water and say a prayer. Have I eaten enough today? Am I experiencing a headache because I'm out of shape and I just went up the stairs and now I'm breathing hard? Uh, these are the kinds of like just reflect and ways of mortifying the flesh by saying, hey, I can, since when did I get to this state where I can't endure any pain whatsoever? So yeah, I'll grant myself permission if it's still here in 20 minutes. But you're just showing your flesh that you're not the boss of me. I care about you. I'm a good steward of you, but you're not the boss of me. And then likewise, you know, with sloth and this kind of thing, this is where like a holistic approach sometimes is very important to actually setting up a prayer schedule and this kind of thing. Because you just realize, well, how could I expect myself to be disciplined in this one area of life when I'm not disciplined anywhere else? So even with the sloth thing, it's like, oh, I don't feel like doing it right now. I should go to bed or I should take a nap. It's like, no, that's exactly the time I should do it. Why? If for no other reason than to show my flesh, you're not the boss of me. Now I'll make sure and get enough rest and be a good steward of myself, but I'm fighting back. All right, so I'm down here kind of in the frontline trench warfare against the flesh. As we get higher and loftier, we get to confession and absolution. We get to regular attendance at church and just trying to fill your schedule with opportunities for God's word and prayer because it becomes less likely that the flesh is going to flare up and do something outrageous when you've just had God's word put into your ears or you've just had the the Holy Supper put into your mouth or something like that. But this is all this, the spiritual combat. And I've tried to give you as best I can a, a quick insight, nothing more, into the nature of the flesh. And if you just give yourself over to the flesh, why does he say you're going to die? Because the flesh will just get stronger and stronger and stronger until the flesh says, you know what? You deserve to sleep in on Sunday mornings. You can still be a Christian. And pretty soon, there's nothing going on in your day. There's nothing going on in your week. There's nothing going on in your life. All there is is maybe this smoldering wick within you that just goes, I'm still a Christian. That's what the flesh will do. And then if you let the flesh just increase and continue, eventually, why do I need that? And so that's that's why Paul says that if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, and again, look, he doesn't say if by your own 
strength, if by even the strength of the new man, but if by the spirit. So we realize our entire dependence. That's kind of the paradox here is, well, the flesh is all us. The spirit is all him. And so if you live by the spirit and you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Right? That is, mortal combat is essential because you've got this thing within you, your flesh, your body, who's actively trying to kill you. It's like, well, I don't feel like spiritual warfare today. Okay, the other side does. <laughs> I mean, the flesh is coming whether you like it to or not. So you say, I'm tired of the fight. You may as well just hand yourself over. Um, it's, and this is where, you know, again, I also don't want to paint anything that's, that's untrue to Christian experience. These things are very frequently fitful in the saints. That is to say, you make a really good push, and then you might have a great fall, and you might languish and get trampled a bit by the flesh, and then you need to be picked back up by God's Word, have your conscience cleansed, be strengthened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, and get back to it. And sometimes the Christian life, in in terms of warring against the flesh, is two steps forward, one step back. Truth be told, sometimes it's one step forward, two steps back. But the but that it's neither here nor there. The whole point is that you recognize what's going on, and you're fighting that good fight of which Saint Paul speaks. So um, you can see then that this isn't about you picking yourself up by your bootstraps. It's not you learning a certain technique or memorizing ten steps. It is to some degree noetic in the sense that you need to know what the flesh is and begin to recognize that in your life. You need to know what the spirit is and begin to recognize that in your life. You need to see how these two interface, not by compromising with each other. That never works. Um, but by one dominating the other. And the goal for, for the Christian life is to break it down to a single day and move from one prayer, your morning prayer, when you, as soon as you wake up, to your breakfast prayer, your breakfast prayer, to your lunch prayer, your lunch prayer, to your dinner prayer, your dinner prayer, to your nightly prayer. Move one prayer at a time, one word of God at a time, fighting the flesh just like that. Incrementally, tiny, humble, nothing big. Not waving a banner saying, look what a great saint I've become. It's not like, you don't even have time for that. You're like, what, what do I need to do between breakfast and lunch to keep myself falling into great sin and to fulfill my vocation as best I can. And if I find myself falling to pray prayers of repentance and receive the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and be strengthened and renewed. All right. Uh, hopefully, um, I see a hand popping up here. We'll, we'll um, take your, your question or comment here. But, but hopefully this is painting a picture for you that resonates not only with Romans 8, but with other scriptures you've seen. So how can these apply to somebody that is sick? Mm. Great question. So what kind of sickness are we talking about? A transient sickness or a chronic sickness? Chronic? Yeah, so as as um, you have chronic sickness, this was, um, I should probably do a class on this at some point. Many of the early church fathers viewed sickness not as a negative thing. We immediately view it as a negative thing. We immediately view it as something to be removed. Many of the early church fathers saw in sickness rather a cure. 
And when you, if you went to a pastor in the early church, in at least among these church fathers, let's say, and you said, I have this chronic illness, and I've prayed and prayed and fasted and prayed, and God won't take it away, they would ask, what's the nature of your illness? And they would then say something to the effect of, this isn't an illness, it's a cure. How so? I don't have the strength. I can't carry out my vocation. Exactly. The cure is learning that it's not up to you, that you're not so important, and that God will see that the needs of the people around you are met even without you. So in every instance of a kind of chronic sickness or malady that afflicts the Christian, these church fathers would look and say, what is the benefit and blessing? What is the mortification of the flesh? And here you're thinking also of the flesh being like, I can do it. It's all about me. I'm strong. I'm a world beater. I can do it all. How is that pride and arrogance being crushed via the sickness? How is God showing you that you're not in control, but he is? And then how is he showing you that he loves you even while this cross is laid upon you? That's another huge dynamic. So sickness has historically in the church viewed been viewed as, um, you know, be a good steward of the body. If you can get rid of the thing, get rid of the thing. If you pray and God takes it away, wonderful. Remember, St. Paul prayed about this thorn in his flesh three times, and God's answer was effectively, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. That's the attitude. That's the kind of attitude and and I mean this dynamically, the kind of theology we have to embrace when we have a chronic illness, a thorn in the flesh that God has chosen not to remove at this time. Um, I need to learn in what ways he is teaching me that his grace is sufficient and in what ways his strength is being manifested even in this condition of weakness. There is virtually infinite to learn but it's just it's a theological way of understanding it's it's an objectively correct way of understanding what god has laid upon us and what he wants us to do with it so i hope that that helps and i've said before in an earlier class that the sick bed becomes you know if you're chronically ill and can't get out of bed that becomes your temple and your altar you are a royal priest and that that's it you know, maybe before your temple and your altar were your home and your workplace. This is where you were offering yourself as a living sacrifice. This is where you were serving God and pleasing God by laying down your life for the sake of others. But now what you have to realize is that's just shrunk down. Now your temple and your altar is maybe not your house or your workplace. Maybe it's just your bed. And here, what can you do to love and honor God and worship God and receive God's goodness and enjoy fellowship and communion with him, um, even under these very limited constraints? And we've talked, too, about how beautiful this is in the sight of God to suffer not for doing wrong. To suffer for doing wrong is just just. <laughs> it's just what you all endure. You know, you did the crime, you've got to do the time. So there's nothing particularly impressive about that. 
But when you suffer innocently, as it were, turning your heart and mind toward the God who, even as he afflicts you, the Lord here not giving, but the Lord taking away, and you still blessing the name of the Lord, this is all in the image and likeness of the cross of Jesus. This all has its pattern and its worthiness on account of the cross of Jesus. So it's a very cruciform and Christological thing we're called to, now, this is true for any vocational state. You just have to find it. You have to understand the contours of your life now and the form it has to take and of your priesthood now and the form it has to take. Hopefully that makes sense. Yes, please. Um, on the praying, you know, when we wake up and mm-hmm. and it seems like um, you've emphasized, maybe I'm wrong, before, like um, saying prayer out loud. Yeah, it's really helpful. As long as it doesn't annoy your spouse. No, <laughs> you might have to run downstairs. And... I mean, if you're all like, it's, it's weird to me. I, but is mm-hmm. it for God, for me? What is the, you know, saying? Mm, it's God. just better. I, it's better. I know, but why? <laughs> I don't know. Is it? Yeah, yeah, I don't know. I mean, both like smelling a candy bar and eating a candy bar might both be pleasant, but eating it is much more pleasant. Um, that, I, so, no, it's not for God. God can hear the prayers of your heart. He hears your inner monologue. He hears everything. That's certainly an acceptable mode of prayer. And it's not to be discouraged in any way, shape, or form. There are just many things. Well, I, let me tell you this. So, right off the bat, reading and praying in the ancient world were always done out loud. The inner monologue was thought to just be thoughts. I'm not thinking at God. I'm speaking to God. And so I'm going to speak with my mouth. That's the normal mode. Now, it's not to say you can't still have internal monologue prayers of the heart. That's great, and God hears those. And there are many times in our daily vocation where it would be completely awkward to start praying verbally, so don't (laughs) pray in your heart, though. It's great. It's fine. But the standard and the norm was, was just very concrete, and it was, if you're talking to God, talk to God. And then I, I, and then I think if, if you do this for any extended period of time, you can find all kinds of blessings and benefits to it. If, if you want to be speculative, you can say, yeah, the demons that are around harassing you. I mean, I, I've often thought this, hey, if you're going to make me miserable, I'm going to make you miserable too. So we're going to pray out loud here. You're going to have to hear the name of Jesus. Um, the praying out loud also focuses your brain to do something it doesn't do in its inner monologue. Because in its inner monologue, it, it doesn't spell out every word. And that means it's not thinking the thoughts all the way out. It's not making them concrete. If your inner monologue works like mine, it's like, it's like okay, I just sort of like imagine the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. That's it. But it didn't take a concrete instantiation through my lips. It didn't force my brain to do that thing that takes the thought and puts it into words. And then even in that little nanosecond of time that it takes my brain to do that, my brain's also thinking of a concrete application of that in my life. So, you know, if I pray the words like, hallowed be thy name, if I just say it that fast, I don't even know what I just said. And how much worse is that if you just, like I just did it in my head. I mean, it takes less time, it takes an instant, and you just have no idea what it even was. It's just a very generic thought. But as you're praying the prayer, yeah, so 
I can't remember if he says it in terms of out loud prayer, if he says it in terms of song, but Augustine's got this line where he says, um, it's either, I think it's he who prays out loud prays twice. Because not only do you have the thought, but the, then you have the word. And I think, and, and unless I'm confusing the two, the same is said with song, because he who prays by singing prays twice, because song is yet one more element. You'll think, you're thinking of the tonality, it's usually longer. You're stretching all this out. So it's taking more time, it's taking more attention. It's much harder to fall asleep. I can say this by personal experience. Pray the Lord's Prayer in our, mo- in our monologue. And then, like, if you want, especially if it's early in the morning, like, go through the Ten Commandments, go through the Creed. Very, very easy to drift off. But if you're saying it out loud, much harder. Still possible, but much harder uh, because you're actually doing something. So I, so I, I'm just saying that even concretely, there's, kind, there's all these kinds of blessings and benefits of being able to say it out loud. By the way, I say the same thing about Scripture. If you have the opportunity and you're doing your daily devotion, read it out loud. It's so much better. It's, it's just so much better. And it's entering your ears. I mean, I, I don't think it's... Obviously, faith comes by hearing. I don't think that that means like Unless you're saying it out loud, you're not increasing or growing your faith or something like that. I don't, I'm, that's not what I'm saying. Um, but there is something about slowing down, hearing it spoken out loud, and spending the time thinking about, well, what is the tonality? What is the way in which this was said as it was being written? Th- that'll only come to you by reading the scriptures out loud. So there are many, many blessings and benefits to praying out loud, reading out loud. God hears it all just the same. I, I think the devils hear it if it's out loud, which is an enjoyable thought. Yeah. yeah. Did that kind of help? All right. Well, I mean, as with all things, your mileage may vary, and I'm not trying to lay any kind of law upon you in, in this regard, uh, not trying to bind your conscience in the least. But yes, in, in my experience and in the experience of uh, you know, at least a couple handfuls of people that I've talked to about this, it's kind of the, the common experience that if you're able to pray out loud or read God's Word out loud, it's, it's better. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, waging... We, we need to, we need to first understand our enemy, and that's largely what we've lost in modern America, is even to understand the way in which our flesh works at a fundamental level. It's easy enough for us to understand it as Christian people when it's gone way off the charts, and we're like, whoa, that's complete and obvious sin. But how does our flesh get so bold as to do that? How does our flesh get so bold as to start to instantiate patterns of fleshly behavior in our life? That's something we have to study and, and be more circumspect about and get down to the root level. And that's what I've tried to do in a very brief and perfunctory way. All right, so let's press on with a couple more scriptures. Ephesians 4.22. Put off your old self. And I think this is Wolfmuller's point that Paul would say, it's not reform your old self. As you can tell by the nature of the flesh, there's no reforming it. There's just pushing it back. There's just saying no. There's pushing it off of you. Put off your old self. Um, there's not, you can't reform it. 
It's like that dog. You can't like read it a book and it'll suddenly behave and only want to eat when it needs to eat and only want to um, eat precisely the amount it needs to keep perfect balance. And, you know, that's not the flesh. The flesh wants to eat too much, drink too much, sleep too much, play too much. That's all the flesh ever wants to do. And you're not going to reform it. You're only going to suppress, push it down, kill it, etc. Okay, so that's really, as far as I can read, Wolfmuller's point, and it's certainly, definitively, the Scripture's point. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Okay, Romans thirteen fourteen. We know that our old self was crucified with him, now, this is, of course, playing on, this is Romans 13, and it's playing on Romans 6, where we were buried with him through baptism. And Paul goes on to say, if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. So, we know that our old self was crucified with him when? Well, for us, through baptism, we were crucified with him, buried with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. In other words, you love the cross of Jesus. Yes, we all do as Lutherans. Then find within that the very pattern of your life that just as Christ was crucified, so you were crucified with him. And thus the whole point of it is to bring the body of sin to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that's the way that I think it's a no. I, it's it's certainly in Christ, and it's also in the apostles. It's just something capitalized in the early church fathers, where they'll start to describe things with increasing precision. That what your flesh is really doing is having passions, so desires, but very strong desires. And it's these uh, desires here you can see uh, make no provision. Oh, maybe yeah, yeah. But put on. What am I doing here? Did I, I got us all mixed up. This is, I'm sorry, this is Romans 6. Let me try this again. I think I just blurred the two together. I apologize for that. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Right, that's the point. So enslaved to passions. And then look in Romans 13, 14, which comes next. Yeah, I see what I did but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So this idea of enslavement and desire, um, this is the key. And this is, if you remember studying bondage of the will, this is the thing about bondage of the will. It's not that our sins are contrary to the fallen will. It's that our we're so bound to our sins that that's the very thing you do will to do, or the very thing you desire. So, what we're being instructed to do here in Romans 6 and then Romans 13, put off the old self, it's crucified with him, bring it to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And then specified in Romans 13, gratifying its desires is what it means to be enslaved to sin. So, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Um, And then Wolfmuller's comment. 
There is no reform here. These passages are not about fixing the flesh or bringing the old man in line. They are about putting to death, putting off, providing no provision, and crucifixion. Yeah, providing provision is, you know, if you keep, if you provide, that's what a father does for his family is he gives provisions so that they can eat and be healthy and grow and increase. So that's the parallel is we don't want to have the things of the flesh be healthy and grow and increase, have everything they need to grow stronger. So you want to deprive these desires. You want to make no provision for them. So what would be ways we slump into the, in our modern world? It's, it's that we make, you know, I was struck, I was struck by this um, comment uh, by a uh, worldwide renowned psychologist. So this isn't a theological point per se, but he had, he had this lens and it immediately made sense to me. He said, if you, you, you can look at your neighbor, you can look at somebody else and know right away the things that you would do to change their life to make them healthier and better and make them, make them, you can, you can just look like, I think there's, there's some sense of like family member, like intimate acquaintance. You'd no doubt about it. You'd be like, you're staying up too late here. This is a bad pattern that you've gotten yourself into. You should get out of it. And, uh, you know, maybe you eat too much at, at breakfast or you're drinking too frequently or whatever the case may be. It's really easy. So then the psychologist said, well, step out of yourself and look down at yourself and see if you can't see the same things. And it was, it was striking to me because instantly I was like, yep, staying up too late. Too much time on my phone. I mean, it was just instant to me as soon as I gained that sort of third-person perspective of myself. And it's like, if I were to plan what would be best and healthiest for me, what would I prescribe? And it was it was immediately obvious, all these different prescriptions. And he's like, why aren't you doing that? Now, I think that that has kind of a parallel in this, that when we make it easy for our flesh to become imbalanced in all these different ways... And they feed off of each other, too. You stay up too late, so you don't get enough sleep, so your body compensates by overeating, and then you go about your job, and because you don't feel at the top of your game, you start to feel bad, like you're not able to do what you need to do, and so you get home, and you're not only exhausted, but you're stressed out, so you have to have a drink, and then you have a drink, and that lowers your inhibitions and your discipline and everything. So you eat too much and you drink too much and you stay up really late again and repeat. And it just deepens and deepens and deepens. These are, that might be an exaggerated pattern, but probably not that alien from the American pattern at large. So it'd be a way of stepping outside of yourself and seeing how am I making it so easy to fall into these destructive patterns? What provisions am I giving to the flesh those are the points at which I need to attack. Maybe you attack your flesh by saying, you're in bed at 9 and your phone is off by 9.15. Maybe, maybe that's a helpful thing. And again, here, it's not legalism. You figure out what works for you. Paul's not laying out a chart of these are the 50 strategies you need to minimize your flesh. He's just simply saying, you're a Christian, you can figure it out, make no provision for the flesh, starve it out, don't be enslaved to these things, 
but figure out even in the very small ways, the very humble ways, how it is you're going to break these powers and this enslavement. Now, ultimately, this all comes from Christ and the forgiveness of sins and the fact that he nullifies the flesh via his blood, which cleanses us from all sins, cleansing us from the flesh, and that he will mortify the flesh as we pass through death, that final time. So it's not to, it's not to be against any of this or contrary to any of this. Rather, it flows from this. And the very, the very source of this forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus freely given, the very source of this salvation by grace through faith apart from works, is also the very pattern and template and essence of the Christian life, crucifying the flesh, rising, the new man rising with Christ. So hopefully you can see that. that um, what we're doing here is thoroughly biblical, thoroughly cross-centered, and in no means uh, contradicting grace or monergism or any of these other sorts of things. All right, so far so good. So what I want to do then is leap quite a bit of ways ahead, just to 154. And I thought that this was good because it was thought-provoking. Here, Wolf Mueller does, I think, what he calls an, oh no, it's a dissection. It's not an autopsy. <laughs> it's a dissection of a good work. So page 154, you can see that he has these four points. A good work is one done in faith to God. So this is an important distinction. Properly speaking, the good works that the world does, the rich guy who gives away his millions but has nothing to do with Christ, etc., this isn't a good work in God's sight. It's done apart from faith, apart from acknowledging God, and thus it's ultimately done for the self. Even if those would strike us as selfless reasons, relatively speaking, it's still quite selfish in the eyes of a holy, perfect, and selfless God. When the billionaire philanthropist gives away all his money to charities upon death, he's ultimately doing so, why? To make any number of statements, including to perpetuate his name as precisely a good guy. You simply can't avoid the selfishness of good works unless they are done in faith to God. And even then, you can't entirely avoid it, as we'll see. There's no such thing as a perfectly pure good work that we do because the old flesh is always clinging to us and tainting it. Um, but God accepts that as a perfectly good work because he cleanses us with his blood and sees and receives it as a perfectly good work, no matter how small. So that's the first point, is that a good work proper can't be done um, without faith in God. Now, we can make a distinction here and talk about civil good works. That's what the you know philanthropist does, or your Muslim or Mormon neighbor. They aren't Christian, but they're good neighbors. You'd rather have them be good and have them be decent, but we just have to be careful there. These are civil good works. They're not theological good works. God doesn't look and say, wow, that's very impressive. Um, but God looks and, and is indeed grateful when, it, I mean, not grateful, that's not really the right word, but it's sort of, you would rather, in the same way you would rather have a morally righteous, at least even if it's only in civil good works, God would rather have that too than the opposite. Nobody wants to live next to a serial killer or one in training. That's the point. But those things are an entirely different category than Christian good works, which are done in faith to God. All right, done in faith to God. They're also done in obedience to the Ten Commandments. This one hits us sometimes in the, like in the, 
I hate to even say it, but the America, uh, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA, sometimes has this view that um, love set free in the gospel means to do whatever you think is loving, even if that's completely contrary to the Ten Commandments. So go ahead and commit adultery if that's the loving thing to do. Go ahead and steal or covet if that's the loving thing to do. A complete contradiction, because, of course, Christ and his apostles identify the law with love. Essence of the law is love for God and love for neighbor. So you can't love your neighbor by committing adultery. You can't love your neighbor by permitting them to sin. So I think number two is unfortunately very important for us to wrap our minds around. There's no such thing as a good work that's in contradiction with the Ten Commandments. All right, three, for the glory of God, that is, again, oriented toward God, and then four, for the benefit of our neighbor. So those are four things that Wolf Mueller identifies here as a good work, and I think it's okay. I think it's fine. It's worth uh, considering. It's interesting. Then on the next full paragraph, right after the great big words, um, he does make this the same distinction I just tried to articulate. Uh, civil works versus Christian works. Civil works are outwardly done. Christian works are done from a renewed heart. Where does all this come from? Well, it's thorough going in the scriptures, but if you really needed a proof text, you could look to the top of page 155, where Wolf Mueller cites for us Hebrews 11.6. Um, Without faith, it is impossible to please him, him being God. So apart from faith, there's no pleasing him. All right, so I thought that that was a, a helpful, quick discussion point. If there's anything there or anything in the pages between, we can slow down and entertain that. If not, I'll just simply press us on forward a little bit. Would that be all right? Okay, let's turn to page 156. And we're still tangential to this theme just introduced. At the bottom of 156, you see bracketed the words, all good works are completely impossible without faith. And Wolf Mueller writes, faith brings freedom. The Christian life is a life of freedom. Freedom from. That's the key word in this section. From. Freedom from the dominion of the devil. Freedom from slavery to sin. Freedom from the bondage of self-love. Freedom from the fear of death. Freedom from the fear of judgment, from the fear of God's wrath. Now, quoting 2 Corinthians 3.17, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. All right, this next line is, uh, I'm going to embroider it on my pillow at home, right next to all my other scripture-embroidered pillows, because this is as close as it gets. We think of freedom as choice. If I have the opportunity to choose between this or that, I am free. The Bible teaches that freedom is the opposite of bondage. This is a confusion thoroughgoing in the Christian church and in those churches that especially understand and appreciate the gospel of Christ. And that is that for freedom, Christ has set us free. And because we're American, we can't help but see freedom as a freedom of choice. Now I'm free to sin or not to <laughs> sin. I've actually heard this said. I'm sorry. I shouldn't laugh. I guess if you don't, I guess you either laugh or you cry. But you're, you're now free in Christ to sin. 
You're now free in Christ not to sin. You're free in Christ to make mistakes. You're free in Christ to just live however you want to live and let the dust fall wherever it falls. There is no law. You're no longer under law. You're under grace. You're under Christ. You're under forgiveness. You're free. I hope you're smelling the sulfur in the air. The devil couldn't have come up with a better gospel or a better definition of freedom. Yeah, right. Where do you start? You start as a sinner. The the essence of fallen mankind is to be turned in on himself. The self curved in on himself. I'm going to do whatever I want. Christ comes and saves you, sheds his blood to forgive all your sins, puts his Holy Spirit within you, creates you new, and then says to you, go do whatever you want. No, that's exactly where you started. (laughs) That's no freedom at all. So what in what sense has he set you free? And that's where that word from just has to be emblazoned in our minds. He set us free from enslavement to sin. Well, you say, I still sin every day. Yeah, well, in the first place, he's broken the bonds of sin because that sin's forgiven. It's not going to chain you to death. So you're freed from death. You're free from the power of sin that drags you into death. But then secondarily, he it has set you free from enslavement to sin in exactly these ways we're talking about. What part of you is free, even if you're just the most weak, neophyte, barely smoldering wick of a Christian you could possibly imagine? What part of you is free? That part of you that recognizes there's a flesh to be opposed. That's free. That's the part of you that's not in bondage to sin. As you go, this is within me and it's evil. And even if your confession is, it's so evil and so powerful, I basically can't do anything against it. Whatever that is within you that is making that statement is free. It's where Christ has set us free and given us a free nature. So freedom from sin, uh, freedom from the lies of the world to begin untangling ourselves from them, and freedom from the devil, the God of this world, because otherwise our wills and his will were simply one. Now we're praying to the Father, thy will be done, and his will instantiated through our wills. <clears throat> So hopefully that makes sense. But I found, I, <laughs> for my money, I find this to be maybe the most important part of this entire chapter in terms of what we need in modern, contemporary, grace-focused, cross-focused churches. I'm particularly Lutheran, but I'm trying not to narrow it down to just that. We need to realize what freedom is. It's not the freedom to sin. It's freedom from sin. All right, so uh, where do we get this if we look at uh, 157? Let's look at the first full paragraph there. Have a quote from Galatians 5.13 and then 1 Peter 2.16 and then Luther. So Paul, Peter, and Luther all in agreement here. Paul says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Peter echoes this, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as a servant of God, or living as servants of God. We are free to love. We will talk more about this in the next chapter, but here it is good to know that the forgiveness that sets us free from sin also sets us free to love God and neighbor. I mean, indeed, that's what freedom really is. Our natural estate is to love God and neighbor. We have been taken into bondage such that we can't and don't. 
To be set free from that bondage is to immediately return to our natural state of loving God and neighbor. You see, there's no neutral ground here. There's no sense in which now he set you free to love God or not love God. That's just a repetition of the same error we've been denouncing. You're not free to love God or not love God. You're not going to say, okay, well, I guess this minute I'll choose to love God. No, the natural state of human beings as created by God is to love God and love neighbor. Then sin, obedience to the devil, comes and sweeps us away, making it impossible to love God and neighbor. We love only ourselves. To be set free from that is not to be returned to some neutral state. It's to be returned to the original state of loving God and loving neighbor. You see? It's it's rather binary. There's no neutrality. There's no middle ground there, and there's no choice. So when you hear free to love God, it really would more properly be articulated back into a state of loving God. You've been freed back into your natural state of loving God as his good creature. All right. Um, Okay, just a little bit further, and then we're done for the day. We are free to love. We will talk more about this in the next chapter, but here it is good to know that the forgiveness that sets us free from sin also sets us free to love God and neighbor. Luther famously noted, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Right. And the first clause there really, frankly, articulates uh, justification in the extreme, and the second, sanctification in the extreme. But a nice and thought-provoking statement there by Luther. And not out of place next to that, written by Paul and then Peter. Let's um, pause there uh, for the week. If you flip over to page 158, you're going to see something that Wolfmuller calls conscience training. And he's going to introduce us to three dangers of our conscience. And I might have some comments in this section as well, and some things to... Uh, for you to consider in addition. But let's plan next week to spend our time talking about the conscience and exploring that. That'll take us to the end of this chapter. And then next chapter, as I'm looking ahead here, looks like the gift of a neighbor and the beginning of love. I, I suspect that this is going to ultimately take us into a question of uh, vocation. And it does indeed. So that's the plan. The Lord be with you.